Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Overture, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. This is uh, Brandon. He and I have, uh, we've actually been friends for a couple of years now. We have, um, he was one of my first guests on my podcast. And so I'm welcoming him back. Uh, moving into the election, I wanted to kind of get his take on a few things. Um, specifically, I want to start with the, just the overall state of things in the country with regards to, um, specifically the the two-tiered justice system that we have right now. You have a large number of individuals who are uh, working through cases from the January 6th situation. And, you know, some of those charges are pretty hefty given the circumstances. Um, But then you have uh, people who are committing like legitimate crimes just being let out on the street. So I kind of wanted to talk to you as a constitutional law attorney, kind of talk to you about, you know, how, how degraded our system has become where the elites or the upper echelons of society seem to be able to skirt and get away with things. Um, And then also in certain cities, because you have certain DAs that allow people to get off. How does that feel as somebody who practices law to see the degradation of the justice system? So for starters, our system of government is inherently a a two-tiered system, so to speak, um, in that you have federal law and state law. Um, and, And this gets into states' rights issues. Um, But you you have your federal criminal code and then you have your your state laws. Um, And and I think the the most troubling thing to me to watch is uh, the the entire DOJ being weaponized. Um, I, I don't know that you can compare... Um, you know, a a January 6th defendant to, you know, someone who may have been charged at the state level for torching a police car during, you know, the the 2020 riots. Um, So, you know, it's the the system, there there are many more laws at, at the state level, right? Because you know, under the Constitution, the, the way our system is devised, you know, the state is supposed to possess most, if not all, of the police powers. But we've gotten to a state where the federal government, either through actual enactment of statutes or regulations through the administrative state, which is also out of control, um, we're almost reaching a point where we're going to have more uh, federal law enforcement than we are law enforcement at the state level. And that's not how the founders intended this system to work. So you have 
we'll talk about Mar-a-Lago for a second. You have the FBI raiding a former president's home uh, for classified documents that he had in his possession. Um, I would like to hear your take. First of all, you hear a lot of like, oh, well, the president can just look down at a document and say this document's declassified, like there's that there's no process there because he's the commander in chief. Can you kind of clarify a little bit what that process actually looks like? Do you know what that process looks like? So I have not had any firsthand involvement dealing with this issue, but I have, um, you know, out of curiosity, uh, you know, following the raid, um, done extensive research on the declassification authority of a president. And I've been unable to find any authority uh, indicating that, that the president doesn't have unfettered authority to decline. And there is no process. I can't answer your question in that respect. There is no process for declassification. Um, you know, uh, uh, and you're correct in, in, in your statement, um, in your belief that, that there is no formal process for declassification. Uh, the, if the president obtained the classified documents during his tenure, during his administration, he is entitled to keep those. He is entitled to declassify some or all of them at his discretion. And there are no limits to that. So the, the, the whole premise of this, this raid, the execution of the search warrant, and, and, and we can, I'll touch on that briefly. You know, I read the, the affidavit to, the, I'm sure most people have, and it is so egregiously broad in, in scope, um, you know, I was a police officer for 10 years. If, if I would have typed a, an affidavit of probable cause requesting a search warrant, and it was phrased that broadly, any and all documents, any and all areas of, of the premises, any adjoining uh, property, just that a judge would have laughed me right out of the courtroom, probably scolded me in the process. Um, there was no specificity to it at all. Um, the, the search warrant application was just a boilerplate. Hey, we want to go in and see what we can find essentially. Um, and a judge signed off on it and I'm sure there was judge shopping involved. Uh, you know, I'm sure the agents, uh, who drafted this, this affidavit, probably at the, the, direction and, and under the supervision of, of Merrick Garland, um, you know, you always know who the friendly judges are. Um, and, and certainly that was borne out once the facts started to emerge, um, as, as to who the, the, the district judge, I don't believe it was a district court judge. It was a, a, a district, uh, magistrate judge. Um, who signed off on the, the, the search warrant. I mean, and I'm sure there was no scrutiny at all. And I'm sure those agents knew when they walked into the judge's chambers 
that that there would be no scrutiny. So they knew that they they didn't have to be particular in uh, you know what their stated probable cause was. Uh, I mean, they're citing articles, news articles, uh, you know, uh, they're citing, you know, comments that people made on Twitter um, as the basis to search the home of a former United States president. It's just, it's breathtaking. And I mean, from an objective perspective, I did vote for Donald Trump in both elections, but it, for me, it was much more, you know, lesser of two evils situation. And I, I was proud of some of the things that he accomplished while he was in office. That's why I voted for him a second time. But it feels very much like uh, what do we, the election meddling. Like it's no different than what we, you know, we talk about Russia or China, you know, meddling in our elections, creating mis or disinformation. That's what this feels like. You're making it seem as if just like when he ran in 2016, that there was Russian collusion, that he partnered with Russia to affect our election. There are people today who still believe that. Well, and, and that, that is the whole point of these campaigns. Um, it was, it was the, the driving force behind the Russia hoax. Uh, and it's it's certainly the driving force behind these endless investigations and and you know potential criminal charges that are never going to come. Um, they may. I mean, he may end up being indicted, um, but they know it won't won't go anywhere. And that's not the point. They don't ever expect to convict Donald Trump of committing a crime. That's that's not what this is all about. It's right. exactly what you just said. It's creating this public image of Donald Trump as a lawless rule breaker. Um, you know, someone who thinks he can do anything he wants and get away with it. And, and that's because, let's face it, the majority of voters are not going to scratch beneath the surface. They're going to scroll through their Twitter feed. They're going to go to CNN or Fox News's homepage in the morning, scroll through the headlines, and that's it. So even the headlines of stories are crafted with this in mind. They know most people aren't going to take time to read an entire article. The Hill is the best at doing this. These, right at writing their headlines. These headlines that they know probably 70 to 80% of people are going to read and form their strongly held beliefs based on that headline rather than actually clicking on the article and reading it. Right. So uh, I want to shift a little bit. You talked about the the whole Department of Justice being weaponized. Um you're also starting to see a huge shift with uh, like an entity like the DHS, right? The DHS was established uh, to combat terror outside, like terrorist terrorism against the United States, foreign terrorism. And now 
you're starting to see the FBI and the DHS be shifted to where now we're monitoring Americans because that's the threat to the country. Correct. And And, and this DOJ is not only exploiting DHS's authority, but also the root of all of this really is the Patriot Act. I mean, the Patriot Act was enacted for a noble purpose at the time, but it also has been bastardized and is now being used as a political weapon to spy on opposition candidates. Uh, It's, it's astounding. So my question to you is like, it shouldn't be legal. You shouldn't have government entities scheduling meetings to meet with social media companies to tell them what speech to censor or what uh, trending topics to tamper down. You literally right before an election tampered down by lying again about Russian collusion or Russian disinformation. And it turns out the shit that's on that man's laptop is fucking disgusting. And so at who's, who's culpable there at that point, you know, you have the, the tech companies who comply with the government because they're coercing them. And then you have the government that's like, well, we can't censor speech, but you know, we'd really like this to quiet down. And I, it just, I don't understand how we as citizens are supposed to hold our government accountable when they are all in cahoots with one another. It's all just one big, massive, centralized unit of control. Unfortunately, there is no, there's no easy answer to this question. There's no easy fix because, you know, the, the federal government, uh, the Biden administration, even back to the Obama administration, has been caught red-handed so many times um, doing things that are illegal, unconstitutional, but they're never held to account. And I place a lot of that blame on Republicans. Um, we, as a party, and when I say we, I'm, I'm a Republican, I will admit that I consider myself more of a conservative than a Republican, uh, because I'm not aligned with, uh, you know, every idea that the Republicans have, and certainly not aligned with many that Democrats have, but, you know, I, I can be rational enough to <laughs> You know, put put my feelings aside about individuals, you know, particular right. politicians, and say, you know, that's a good idea. Or if Republicans come up with it and it's not a good idea, I mean, I think Trump made some bad calls during his presidency. You know, and and if if you spoke out and said that as a as a Trump supporter, I mean, I, you were viciously attacked instantly. Yeah. Um, but no one's perfect. No party's perfect, certainly. Um, I, I don't know how to answer your question. How how do you com- combat this? Because you know there have been situations that were black and white. You know everything 
was was there in the public eye. Um, the 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 tech collusion with tech. Um, you know, until much of what we see every day is an act. You know, the vitriol between. Democrats and Republicans, you know, they're all at the same swanky bar at, you know, 6 p.m. For you know, sitting sure. down and laughing about, you know, the, 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 the latest scam they, they were able to perpetrate on, 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 on the American public. Um, it, it's theater. It really is. And, you know, Congress has the power of the purse. I mean, Almost every federal agency, you know, other than the judiciary, which is a branch of government, uh, the Supreme Court, you know, which which is obviously part of the judiciary, you know, all of these agencies, the DOJ, HHS, everything is a creation of statute. And uh, Congress just, the Republicans in Congress, when they have control, they just sit back. They're just happy that they have control at that point, And that's good enough for them. And I'll give it to the Democrats. When they get into positions power, of power, they, <laughs> they are ruthless. They are vicious. They are unapologetic. And if Republicans don't start playing by the same rules, it's game over. Not just for the party, but for the country. For the country, yeah. Um, so one more question before I shift to some Scottish uh, stuff. Um, do you think that? Okay, I'll go this direction. So the elections coming up in in November. Uh, I say November. It is November. I'm completely <laughs> losing track of my days at this point. Um, it's next week, next Tuesday, and. You have the opportunity for Republicans to at least take power in Congress. And do you see them, that pendulum swinging? Do you see them actually uh, coming forward and and making some some cuts and saying, you know what, we're not going to fund your 87,000 IRS agents. We're not going to, we're going to repeal the NFA and be done with the ATF. That organization doesn't need to exist anymore. Um, like, do you see a, a, an actual shift where we get back to constitutional rights? Now, I, I'm starting to see it in SCOTUS, and we'll get to that in a second, but I don't see it in Congress as much. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Uh, well, you know, it, it's much like the uh, the story of the day, you know, Elon, um, you know, everybody months ago before the sale was even final, you had people, you know, jumping for joy. Oh, my God, my follower counts going up. Look, Elon has not done anything. He hasn't done any. He hasn't made any substantial changes to anything, to the algorithms. To, to the lifetime suspensions that, that he vowed to look into. He hasn't done anything yet. This is such a monumental undertaking. It's the same thing with Congress. I don't think even if, and, and you know, I, I think we need to draw a distinction between old guard Republicans and I don't want to call them Trump Republicans. Let's call them America first 
Republicans. Maybe like populist Republicans. Correct. Correct. So if the balance of power, we, it's not only going to be important what the overall balance of power is in Congress, you know, Republicans versus Democrats. Whether we see significant change is going to depend more on what the sub breakdown of the Republicans that are elected to Congress is. Um, you know, if if we get 60% of, of new Congress members being, you know, Romney, Kinzinger, Cheney oh, Republicans. No, we're not going to see anything because you might as well have Democrats because you're right. going to get the same votes. You're going to get the same, same level of enthusiasm uh, as you would out of Democrats. Now, if this you know, anticipated red wave, and, and I don't take anything for granted, how many times have we heard this in the past, either a, a blue wave, a red wave, and it's it's not come to fruition. And I think it's very dangerous for Republicans, you know, just to kind of go off on a tangent here. I think it's very dangerous for Republicans to throw that term out there. Um, because, again, we can't take anything for granted. Um, right. You know, uh, putting all you know, discussions about you know, election fraud, um, you know, even election improprieties. Um, you know, if, if, if we don't get out there and vote, I mean, you know, that's, that's how Hillary <laughs> got yeah. beaten by the biggest underdog our political system has likely ever seen because everyone's like, this guy's a joke. Like, we don't even have to. Why bother going to stand in line to vote? Like it's it's not going to make a difference. And and you're seeing that all with you know you're still seeing it with the what's what I refer to and I believe Trump's referred to it in the past as suppression polls. You're seeing all of these polls coming out, and they're not intended to enlighten voters. They're intended to influence voters. Right. Um. So I don't see, no matter what happens with the election, even if we retake both both chambers, I don't see, you know, in, say, the first 90 days, anything substantial. I don't see, you know, all these newly minted members of Congress, Republicans coming in and saying, you know, we promise to do these things. You know, if, if we sent a bunch of Donald Trump's to Congress, um, you know, I might think there was a possibility of that happening, but that's just not going to be the case. Um, you've had, you know, there are two members of Congress that that I I truly respect. I mean, there are, there are several, but there are two that have been unwavering in their positions, uh, no matter how high the cost to them politically or personally. And it's, it's, it's Thomas Massey and it's Rand Paul. Oh my um, gosh, this is why I love you so much. <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I've never considered myself a libertarian. I mean, it, it conflicts with my law enforcement background. I mean, to, to be a, you know, pure libertarian, you know, you don't like police. You don't 
right. think there's any place in our society for them. Um, yeah, that is just to me. Again, I'm I'm not trying to be disparaging to anyone. Um, you know, I I'm aligned probably 80 percent with most libertarian viewpoints, but you know, I never really cared for Rand Paul too much. Um, but you know, the the way things have played out over the last couple of years, um, you know, he and Massey were the only two that have been unwavering. Um, their positions haven't changed. They haven't given in their, their messaging has been consistent. I mean, you can go back and, and, and look at their timeline. You can look at their, their, their social media accounts. You can look at the speeches they give their voting record. It's all been consistent and they don't care. And that's what we need. We need a lot more of those types of conservatives. I don't care. You know, Massey was maligned, you know, during the, you know, initial days of COVID, you know, for simply wanting to get a vote on the record. So the American public would know how their Congress members voted. And, you know, he was, he was destroyed in the media. He was destroyed on Twitter. Um, and, And he didn't care because he was doing what he believed was right. That's conviction. And that's something that I can, I can respect. Since you mentioned COVID, I want to, I want to touch on that for a second. And to, to your point, what I would really like to see, like everybody's like, Oh, DeSantis, Oh, Trump for 2024. And I'm over here screaming for a massive Paul ticket for 2024. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, it would be absolutely remarkable. Um, but anyway, uh, since you did touch on COVID, that was a, that was where I was going to go next anyway. Um, do you think that there's going to be... So in North Carolina, there's a case working right now where the, I think the state Supreme Court ruled that the Health and Human Services Administrator for the state can be sued in civil cases. Um, if I, if I'm remembering the case law correctly and I could be completely wrong. So listeners, if you hear that and I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but I think it's something along those lines where the, that administrative office can be held legally responsible for things that happened during COVID. And I wonder if you think that we could see based off of the information that we now see coming out of like the vaccines and stuff like that, where it's clearly, uh, I think it was Pfizer, the representative in that testimony in Europe came out and said, no, we never tested to see if it it would affect transmission. And you have our government officials saying, if you get the shot, you won't get COVID. And do you think that there will be a reckoning, class action lawsuits, any sort of responsible uh, or forced to take responsibility for the choices and decisions that were made here in the United States. Do you think that we'll see that at a federal level? Unfortunately, I do not. And it, it's, it's not because there isn't 
there aren't sufficient grounds for it uh, or because it's not warranted, it's because you know, you know, immunity statutes, governmental immunities at the state level and the federal level are designed to insulate public officials. Now, there are always exceptions, of course. I mean, we wouldn't have 1983 action civil rights suits if, if there weren't exceptions to the otherwise absolute sovereign immunity of, of the federal government. Uh, but until changes in the law are made to permit procedurally these types of suits to be brought, um, I don't, I don't see it happening. I mean, there would need that would, that fundamental change would have to happen, and I'm not saying it couldn't. I'm just saying that it's not as simple as someone waving a wand and saying, "Okay, all of these government officials, you know, we've seen enough. All of these government officials have, have you know, violated their oaths and and you know." They're they're open. They're fair game. Um, you know, file God, your wouldn't lawsuits. that be glorious? Though it would be so it would. amazing. <laughs> it, it, it would. I mean, you know, as you know, any uh, you know, civil litigator uh, at at either the state or the federal level will tell you. You know, one of the the, 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 the primary things you have to be concerned with when you're evaluating a, a, a potential case is is this a governmental entity? And if so, are they entitled to absolute immunity? Are they entitled to qualified immunity? Or is there some exception that applies to this case that allows us to get into the courtroom with this, um, you know, without it being dismissed based on immunity? Um, and, you know, obviously immunity isn't saying that they didn't do anything wrong. I mean, they could admit to doing something wrong. If they have immunity, there's nothing that can be done to them, which, you know, I guess kind of the, the a tangent of that is, you know, sort of the, the games that, that the FDA plays with the pharmaceutical companies and, um, you know, granting them immunity. Uh, you know, it's, it's similar to, you know, Section 230 and, and granting these social media platforms immunity. It's, you know, one hand washing the other. It's yeah, the government, um, you know, saying, oh, you're our friends. You contribute to our campaign. So we're going to insulate you. We know it's tough out there in the business world, and we live in a litigious society, so we'll give you some protection. <laughs> now keep those campaign donations coming in. Okay, yeah. You have a dinner for me? I'll make sure nobody can sue you. <laughs> right. Um, so just a couple more things. I want to specifically talk about the state of Pennsylvania. And you guys had a case that was just ruled on where if uh, these mail-in ballots come in and they do not have the date or they're not filled out properly, those votes are not allowed to be counted. Now, that wasn't the case for the 2020 election, but you they're setting those ballots aside now in Pennsylvania. Do you think that that will hold or do you think that that will go on appeal and that those will end up being counted? 
I will say that I was somewhat surprised uh, when I read the news earlier this week, uh, simply because the Pennsylvania Supreme Court is so inherently left-leaning um, that when, when we see a, a favorable opinion by the Commonwealth or Superior Court, which are our intermediary courts of appeal, um, you know, it, it's, you can't get too excited because right. when I say favorable, I mean favorable to Republicans or conservatives, um, because you know, that's going to be appealed to the state Supreme court who will then undo what the, the appellate court just did. Right. Um, so to see, you know, I initially saw a headline, I, I clicked on it, I thought, well, you know, this maybe this is a Commonwealth court case. Um, and, and I was I was genuinely surprised when I saw that that the state Supreme Court now I, I don't know uh, really what the inner workings are right now with the Supreme Court. I don't know if you know this, our, our Chief Justice uh, passed away about a month ago, uh, unexpectedly. So uh, there there is a vacancy on the court. Um, but you know, it was, you know, predominantly left-leaning prior to the chief justice's passing. Um, so I didn't expect much to change. Um, the next step is, is the federal courts. So, you know, I don't know, I don't know if, if Wolf and the, the, the Democrats and the legislature, I don't yeah. know if they get that to into a federal court or not. Uh, you know, I, I haven't uh, I haven't seen any news uh, about an appeal yet. Um, but when you're playing with other people's money, you know, typically you do. You know, the losing party is going to take it as far as they can, especially when. You know, the taxpayers are footing your legal bills. Right. Um, so you mentioned SCOTUS. I'm going to go ahead and move there since I've only got you for about 10 more minutes. Um, tell me your top two decisions out of SCOTUS in last session and your top two that you're looking forward to in this session. So, you know, obviously Dobbs was big. Um, I, I still don't know that I've processed that decision. Um, just because Roe v. Wade, I mean, my entire life, there's been Roe v. Wade. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been at the forefront of our political discourse since it was handed down. Um, So, you know, for that to be overturned, that certainly um, was, you know, to me just that it's, it's, it's a once in a lifetime uh, thing to see. Yeah, as a constitutional attorney, I feel like that's a really cool, that that had to be like a really, profound and cool experience to be able to watch the system work the way that it did in that situation. Maybe I'm just projecting, but I, I feel like it would be. 
It, it is. It's, it was, I, I hate to sound cheesy, but it was surreal. I mean, you, you sit in a law school classroom and, you know, you learn and, and, you know, who would ever think, you know, years ago, sitting in that classroom discussing this case, it's almost, you take it for granted that it's, it's law, that it will, it's stone. It will, it will never move. Um, and, you know, to see it happen, it, yeah, it was really cool. Um, you know, s- certainly I-, I support, you know, the court's decision. Um, you know, but I-, I would have to say, even if I were pro-choice, you know, being a lawyer and, and seeing a- a- such a landmark case be overturned, um, and and many scholars and lawyers over the past three decades have criticized the Roe decision. So, you know, and I'm sure in the back of, of some people's minds in the legal community, there was always that possibility that because it, it was decided on such tenuous, shaky grounds, that it could be overturned. I, I don't think anybody expected it. And, and I'll be honest with you, I was very afraid um, that the leak would be successful. Yeah. Um, I, I can't tell you <laughs> uh, how apprehensive I was about that um, because it not only would it have been a terrible thing when the court was poised to overturn the Roe v. Wade, but I think it would have forever tarnished the court itself. Yes. Um, because if, if this leaked opinion came out, it was verified. Um, and then the subsequent campaign of, of terror against the Supreme court justices, uh, namely Thomas, um, was successful, what incentive is there to not do this with every opinion? Right, every time with? you don't agree Because with you know if you cause a big enough scene, you're going to get your way. And and I, I, I give all the credit in the world to, to the justices who stood their ground um, and, and didn't allow all of this noise and these threats to influence their legally sound uh, decision to, to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, the, I guess probably the other significant case, the New York gun case. New York v. Uh, Bruin. Yes. I don't know why. It's been a long day. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> you're the attorney here you should know <laughs> oh my god you're on top of things that's you know there i just made you look really good <laughs> oh, it's just because i'm a gun nut i wouldn't have known the name of the case if it hadn't have been for that okay you know, every- top two that you're looking forward to oh wait hold on wait i want to go back to the new york v Bruin case real quick so right after they they made that ruling Kathy Hochul is like, you know what? Fuck you guys. I'm going to continue to restrict 
in and then they release like this massive number of places where you're not allowed to carry uh, subways, parks, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's I'm curious you have states rights. This is where like I it gets interesting for me. So you have states rights, you have federal law. And so you have Kathy Hochul being like, you know what? I, I see that you ruled that federally. Fuck you. We're going to do this here in our state. Um, she's kind of thumbing her nose at the decision. So what does that look like in practice? Because it, the individual's right is what matters. It's not necessarily federal law or state law. It's the individual. And the right to defend yourself, the right to keep and bear arms is inalienable. So I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Just briefly, and then we'll get to the other two, and then I promise I'll let you go because I know it's well, getting close. No, no, it's it's quite all right. I we can we can run over a few minutes. I will be just fine. Uh, so yeah, this is a dangerous trend uh, we're we're starting to see with um, you know government officials at the state level thumbing their nose at precedent that they don't agree with. Um, in, in Pennsylvania, you know, the, the, the subject we touched on uh, briefly a few minutes ago, the, the undated um, or unsigned uh, mail-in ballots. Um, yeah, didn't you guys have, uh, like, your Secretary of State or something came out and said – that's okay. It doesn't matter what was yeah, said. We're, yeah. we're not changing the way so that we the advise Supreme to move Court, forward. Correct. The, the United States Supreme Court, I believe it was back in October, um, put a halt to that. They said, no, you, you can't, you can't count those. You know, they're, they're to be, I don't know if, if the U S Supreme Court said the same thing as the state Supreme Court just said that they have to be segregated and, and are not to be counted. Um, you know, the acting secretary of state, as Ho Hochul did, thumbed her nose, said, no, no, this is the way we're doing it. We don't care what SCOTUS says. Um, and it's, it's, it's a dangerous usurpation of the separation of powers. I mean, for our system to work, every branch has to respect the authority of the other branches. Um, and we're in, we're in very dangerous territory when state governors, state AGs are, are just simply saying, I don't care what SCOTUS said. I don't care what a federal district judge or a federal appellate court said. This is what I'm doing. Um, I, and the reason it's so dangerous is because once you start to blur those lines, um, which you saw a lot back in the Obama era with the violation of separation of powers principles you know, be, be, between the executive and the legislative branch. Right. Um, and if, you know, I guess the founders were naive enough to believe that, okay, we'll establish these branches of government and our citizenry will elect capable, mature <laughs> adults who will respect 
each other's dominion. Um, and, and the more we see of this, I think the more risk there is that, you know, eventually what incentive is there going to be, you know, as a member of the executive branch to, you know, this was big back in the Obama administration with Eric Holder. They were just refusing to defend, you know, federal laws because they didn't agree with them. Um, And, and, you know, you don't make the laws, you enforce the laws, you execute and enforce the laws that are enacted by Congress. You don't say, well, we'll enforce this one because we're okay with it, but we're not going to enforce that one because we're, we're, we're at a different place ideologically. Yeah. So and that's what you have here with Hopel saying, I don't care what the Supreme Court says. I'm going to do what I want to do. Um, so you know, where is the recourse? You know, it's in a courtroom. You right. know, it's a federal lawsuit. If SCOTA says this is unconstitutional and a government official continues to do it, notwithstanding that fact, your recourse is the law. Well, and I think there's another, like we talk about the executive and the judiciary, but there's a, there's a legislative element there too. You know, it's not a law. It was an edict issued down by the executive branch. And you see the power of the pen being utilized across the country at a federal and state level in ways, uh, you know, largely due in part to COVID, right? We say emergency power, and man, did they did they really use that emergency power in Go ways that I just really timeline. never expected? Go back on my timeline. I don't expect you to do this. But if you would go back on my timeline to March, April 2020, the first alarm that I ever sounded about COVID was these sweeping emergency powers. Um, to me, that was more terrifying than the virus in all honesty, because it's just a a perfect storm for tyranny. It it really is. Um, You know, when, when you can usurp any constitutional provision, any act of the legislature, simply by saying, I'm invoking my quote, emergency powers. Um, it, it all comes back. If we don't respect the separation of powers, we no longer have a functioning government. It's that simple. As a former police officer, was it difficult for you to see, you know, people who swore to uphold the constitution, essentially, I mean, you take an oath when you become an officer and see them, you know, acting on these edicts issued by the let the uh, executive branch where it's like, this isn't a law, but you're treating it as one. I have, I've written articles, I've written papers on, I guess, related topics. Uh, they were, most of them dealt with executive overreach because at the time in Pennsylvania, we were going through a, uh, really difficult time with uh, our our former attorney general, Kathleen Kane, who's, 
who was ousted and <clears throat> has since been arrested several times herself. Um, but, you know, our, our current governor, thank God, he will soon be our former governor, uh, Tom Wolf, um, was, you know, I would say in the top three uh, you know, COVID tyrants, um, he squeezed every drop of power that he could from the, the COVID rock. Um, and, and it was, it was disturbing to watch and, and, and no one would, we have a, we have a Republican controlled legislature and they, they just rolled over for the most part, yeah. not all of them, but generally they, they rolled over and, and allowed him to do this. So. Okay. Top two cases coming up on the docket and then I will let you out of here so you can go to your next appointment. Oh, so names, the Colorado, um, the web designer. Um, <gasps> yes. The one where she really didn't even commit about- a crime. She asked for permission and they, is that the one Correct. you're talking about? Correct. Yeah. About you know, religious grounds. She doesn't want to create websites for lesbian weddings or something like that. Yeah. Um, that, that, that'll be interesting. Um, the other case uh, I actually have flagged. I don't remember the name of it. It is... Give me one second here. While you're looking for that, I want to ask you what your thoughts are on the affirmative action case. Do you think that affirmative action will be overturned? Um, I don't. And I think it's going to be more of a political justification than a legal decision. Um, you know, I just think that, you know, look, the Supreme court has, has this, this court, this, this conservative court has, um, issued some, you know, Dobbs, uh, some monumental decisions and, and heavily favoring, you know, conservatives, um, or conservative ideals, um, you know, I think at some point they're going to, and this is pure speculation, but, you know, I've, I've obviously um, spent a lot of time, you know, with, with my nose in, in, in books and articles, you know, about you know, day-to-day uh, goings-on uh, at the court and, and kind of some of the behind-the-scenes uh, things that go on. And, um you know, I just think they're going to say, look, if, if there's a toss up, look, we, we overturned Roe v. Wade, you know, we, we, we slapped out New York's gun law, you know, this affirmative action, you know, is it really hurting anyone, you know, we'll throw you a bone. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think that's, that's probably, but that's, I, you know, we'll see. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the, Really, the, the the person who's or the justice who's the most critical um, of affirmative action and has been is is Clarence Thomas. So, um, you know, I don't see him as as a shrinking violet, but you know, I I think some of the newer justices um, 
you know, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, um, you know, I think they may say, look, uh, you know, we've been, we've been taking a lot of heat for these decisions. Uh, let's, uh, as you said, let's throw them a bone. Right. Um, so the other case I'm following is, I actually have to have these set up that I get alerts on them. Um, okay, now I totally know that you're a legal nerd if you have alerts turned on. <laughs> I do, cases. I do. I More say that I have, uh, I have notifications turned on for uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee. <laughs> So, oh, that's more nerdy than me with my with my <laughs> SCOTUS cases. So the the other one is Morby Harper. It's uh, dealing with North Carolina. That's the redistricting case, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Redist- so explain to me what that like just briefly. I I know I, I could keep you on here for like days, but. Just briefly touch on what that case is about, because I don't know that I really understand it. Like, I it's from what I can gather, it's something about like the way that the gerrymandering took place. It was too politically motivated. So that's that's the only takeaway that I have from it. But that's not the issue. That's not the actual issue that that the court is deciding this. And, and we dealt with a similar situation here in Pennsylvania, and I, I know several other states have. Um, it's dealing with the independent state legislature theory. Um, and, and what Republicans are arguing under the Constitution, uh, the, the U.S. Constitution, only the, the, the legislature has the power to regulate federal elections um, and that state courts don't have any say. Um, so I guess in essence, you know, what, what the, the, the Supreme court is going to have to decide in that case is whether the state courts, and this will be relevant to Pennsylvania as well, because our, our state Supreme court has made several, uh, highly significant decisions regarding elections. Um, so the question is, can a state court interfere with a state legislature's otherwise unfettered discretion over elections and election law? And that case is being heard next month? Correct. And the decision will be made in the spring, right? Yes. That's interesting because that's going to lead into the 2024 election. That's it's, interesting. It's definitely going to have a nationwide impact. Reverberations. I mean, there's, there's no yeah. question about it. Like I said, we've had at least two or three significant cases here um, between 2020 and today uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, where the state Supreme Court has handed down decisions that essentially affected uh, the legislature's ability to uh, prescribe and oversee elections. Hmm. Well, I guess I'm going to have to turn notifications on for that one too. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> I'll be interested to see how that shakes out. Okay, I know you got somewhere to be, and I have kept you 15 minutes longer than I should have, so I want to tell you thank you so much for coming on with me. Uh, Really quick, will you give your uh, Twitter handle so that all of the people can come follow you? Sure. My handle is at brash underscore one. That's at B-R-A-S-H underscore and the number one. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on with me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and I appreciate you making the time. Thank you. It was great speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death!